All right. Uh, so I don't, I don't really have much to add to the video. So we're done. You know. Uh, uh, I think it's a great uh, intro. So instead, I kind of want to just for this morning, uh, I want to just use their kind of definition of transgression, transgression, and explore that, and uh, and try to dive uh, a little deeper into just their def definition. So, and what I'm more interested in thinking about with you this morning is what it means to violate trust in relationships as it relates to our bodies. And I think a, a story to that really re, um, captures this would be in Genesis 4. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis 4. If, if you have uh, your phones, you can just turn there. Um, we'll be just looking at the first 10 verses of Genesis 4. Uh, and while you guys are turning there, anything that stuck out from you from the video before I get going? Any, anything you thought was interesting the big thing that stands out to me is I may have even used that verse last week <laughs> it's, you know we have one word sin right there's these different words so I think failing to grasp the depth of that word is the point of this series mm. and you know just hopefully through these three weeks figuring out the different ways in which we break God's moral law mm -hmm. yeah I think that's do y'all use the word transgression or iniquity in your daily life? No? All the time? Uh, well, that's... Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that's right. Just kind of trying to... It's all talking about the same thing, which is sin. But, um, you know, in some sense, just it's capturing different pictures of it. Um, if, this, if you have a picture of sin, then these different words are trying capturing different angles, I guess. So, anyone else? I just thought it was, I like the illustration because I think a lot of times you think of like the sin, oh, this is against God or I'm sinning against my own body. But this particular version of it, it really emphasizes the, the trust that should exist between people. Um, and it's, 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 it seems worse than just, oh, I reacted angrily towards someone in traffic that I don't know, but it's like, there's this person who relies on my honesty, mm -hmm. and I, I, I betrayed that. Mm -hmm. It's very severe. It's like a, you know, I kind of think of like uh, Grey's Anatomy episodes, you know, it's not like I watched a show or anything, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Hey, I've seen a couple, you know, and it's like, uh, and that, that's what the whole drama is about, right? The drama is about betrayal. And, and the seriousness of betrayal. Uh, and, and it's probably not the best show to reference on Sunday school, but we, mo we move on. Uh, so, all right, Genesis 4, 1 through 10. Uh, how we all know this story, especially if we grew up in church. We have these two brothers who were born from Eve, uh, Adam's wife. Uh, there's the old one, Cain, the younger one, uh, Abel. Uh, each one had a particular skill set or talent. Cain was good at uh, at farming, uh, at farming and, and picking out crops, whereas uh, Abel had a knack for animals. Uh, each used their gifts, their particular gifts, uh, to the best of their ability, maybe, to offer something to God. In verse four, and so whatever reason. God accepts Abel's offering over Cain's, right? Uh, 
Uh, I don't, if you grew up in the Church of Christ um, and you went to, you were active in youth group, you might have had these late night discussions about why did God like Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, you know. Uh, I, I, I still don't know. I don't think anyone know, knows. It's not in the story. Uh, and so we're not going to get distracted on that. Uh, if your kids ask you, just say it's because Abel's uh, name starts with an A and it's the first in the alphabet. Um, I think it's proof that God's not a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> or that. Uh, so, uh, but it's, it's interesting to think about why God might have preferenced Abel's um, offering over Cain's, but... Uh, for whatever reason, this obviously and understandably uh, makes Cain, infuriates Cain, right? He gets really upset. Uh, and he's so angry that God cautions him and says, Dude, okay, you need to just breathe for a second, right? It's almost as if he's a, Cain's like a, like a really angry uh, you know, athlete who just uh, doesn't feel like the rest are going, calling his uh, calling the uh, fair shots or whatever, and the coach is trying to like calm the person down, right? And um, uh, God says, uh, "Sin is crouching at your door, uh, and what you need to do is master it." It's almost like a foreshadowing of what Christ will end up saying in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, not only is it a sin to commit violence against your neighbor, it's a sin to have violent thoughts. And then uh, recall what and it's almost a foreshadowing too of what Paul says. Right in Ephesians, where he says, "Don't go. Uh, where is it? Uh, don't let. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Uh, you know, one uh, ancient uh, uh, figure from the Christian tradition says uh, talks says about the stories that God was trying to tell Cain that a slight growth in vice left unchecked goes to excess and the sin hiding in the heart unimpeded by reason will translate into action even if it seems to be stalled for a brief amount of time right so there's this kind of interesting warning for us uh you know i think about resentment right uh when someone uh upsets you at work and you're just trying to let it go, right? You'll say, oh, that didn't really bother me, right? But you can't stop thinking about that one thing over and over and over again until uh, you, by the end of the week, you're really upset with, this, with whoever offended you at work. And so, you know, we have this, uh, it's kind of a cautionary tale on, on how resentment uh, morphs into even bigger, a bigger sin. So, uh, tragically, we know how the story ends. Cain does not master his sin. Instead, he pursues a path of deception. Uh, Cain said to his brother in verse 8, Brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? And the Lord said, what did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Uh, That, to me, is probably one of the more striking, perhaps even horrifying images that you could probably find in Scripture. Uh, I, you know, that's... uh, uh, one, you know, there's a, I don't know. How do you make sense of that? What does it mean for blood to be crying out from the ground? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's, it's leaves an impression on you. What do you think? Uh, what do you think it might mean? To me, it almost like feels like you know because a transgression has occurred that there's going to be like a punishment for that. You know, like, mm-hmm. like there's no that can't just lie without God doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. 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 I think the telltale heart that sticks out to me too, the, the way less literary version of that is there's this movie that probably most of us saw like 15 years ago called The Grudge. Um, but it's this like idea, right, that like when it, it tells itself in our stories too, when, when there's like that type of betrayal, there's almost like a haunting, you know what I mean? And mm. I don't mean to say that there's actually a haunting happening here, but it's this idea that when something happens that is such a gross betrayal of trust, that mm. there's something left over, some negative negativity that's left over, and it's like God is calling attention to the how horrific that act was. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know an accident happened or someone got sick and, and died. There is injustice, and, and that's that that injustice is just raising up to me. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's this idea of like, you know, when you're murdering someone, you're trying to silence them or, you know, cover something up about that person or, mm-hmm. um, and you can't silence that person from God. You know, God is aware of that sin or that transgression and it screams out to him. Mm. I think it's a greater idea that God, w- when we're unjust <coughs> and when there's injustice in the world, that it, it alarms God, mm-hmm. you know, and so obviously it's a figure to say that it's screaming out to him or it's shouting out to him, but there's that sense that justice, injustice rather stands in the way of God and that it, it alarms, like a real loud alarm to him. Mm. Yeah. And I like that, that Cain tries to act like he doesn't know what God's talking about. You know? Yeah, yeah. Failure to take responsibility. Uh, so uh, thank you for answer, uh, participating in that. So I'll read a kind of a lengthy quote and then... Uh, 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 and this is bought from a guy named uh, St. Didymus the Blind, if you want to know that. I but I think what he says about this story is really interesting. Uh, the loving God conveyed to the one who was unashamed and thought he had escaped God's notice the lesson that this was impossible. That's meaning Cain could not escape from his transgression, saying that the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. Do not think that your crime has escaped the unsleeping eye of providence. This idea that God, of my governance, right? Of God's governance. And by the blood, by the blood's voice, he means it's being obvious as also elsewhere. Lo, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Uh, referencing a parable of Jesus's. While this is to be taken in a similar sense, blood is possibly used here in reference to the soul. You know, on the one hand, you could say that if there were, was mentioned only a blood, he had hidden the body. Uh, it mentions pouring forth the fact that the earth opens its mouth to receive the blood, even your brother's, the purpose being to highlight the crime and to shame the murderer. Uh, So, in other words, Abel's crying blood is a protest of Cain's transgression. It's a cry that declares a violation of, I think we've uh, referenced it already, the moral law, 
and it contradicts and it also contradicts and offends against what is real reality what how things should be uh, at the center of Cain's transgression at the center of his killing his brother is a distorting of reality that was not his to distort um, is a distortion of God's goodness right uh, he did you know God made God created the world uh, God's goodness created the world sin get, put this gap between us and God and so Cain and Abel are born into this world where there's a separation but the creation is still good right and uh, and and then when Cain kind of commits this transgression transgression he's ultimately uh, allowing evil in that moment to stay put and ruin and diminish God's uh, original goodness um, uh, you know and I think what made this image of Abel's crying blood hit home for me was to kind of speculate and just imagine the relationship, uh, Cain and Abel's relationship prior to the whole offering um, drama. Does that make sense? You know, the text doesn't really give us much about their relationship. It doesn't really give us anything, right? Eve had some kids. Here's their names. Here's what they're good at. You, we don't really have a sense of age in this story. We kind of speculate there. But uh, so just there's room to imagine to be um, creative here. And so I, I think I, I just, you know, I wonder if before all of this, as they were growing up, I imagine that they were young men, maybe in their 20s when the, when the murder happened. So I wonder as they were growing up, did they have, you know, it's, it's easy for us to imagine them bickering all the time and then it just results in this horrible crime. But I wonder if it's also just as easy to imagine them having a close sibling bond, you know, bond that's typical of siblings, right? Does that make sense? Like how many of you are siblings or, or you have kids that are siblings, right? Uh, so the other day I went with Eric and, the, and his boys uh, to the zoo. Uh, <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, I, I'd never been to the Memphis Zoo. I live five minutes away from it. I can hear the lion roar from my window, and it's qu quite annoying. Uh, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, we're at the zoo, and uh, uh, Eric's pu pushing Deacon, and I'm hanging out with Foster and Noble. And one of the things that I think I've noticed it before, but I'm an only child, so this kind of this this just looked to me um, uh, different because I didn't grow up with a sibling. I've always wanted one, but I just notice how much Foster just follows implicitly Noble. Right? It's so cool. Uh, there's this kind of trust he has for his big brother in a way that uh, he doesn't have to say it. Say it. Right? He just has this trust there. Uh, he's and even though he wants independence you know he wants to stick out he's going to follow his big brother's lead right uh and uh there's something about that that seems sacred and holy to me especially when you think about this idea of siblings sibling relationships like this is how sibling relationships need to look like this kind of sense of um the older guiding the younger this and it's holy it's sacred it's untouched uh and uh you know uh, there was not a moment during that day where, I, where I, at least I saw, where Noble would like, you know, backstab, you know, backstab Foster in any way, right? So it's just kind of a nice little picture of sibling relationships, right? And oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I was just gonna say, a brother. You may be getting around to this. Sorry. 
of brothers, like having had an older brother, mm-hmm. anytime you best that brother when you're the younger brother, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. where I think it, it becomes difficult. Yes. Well, no, but I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm not, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm, sick, I'm sitting here imagining Cain right. and Abel when you're talking about their relationship and whether it was good or it was bad, and, and who knows, but you look at like Jacob and Esau, mm. who, you know, maybe it's like the most obvious like parallel, mm-hmm. even though we don't have the details of Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. what really undid their relationship was when Jacob got the better of Esau, mm-hmm. and it made Esau want to kill him. Mm. So maybe it was, whether they had a good or bad relationship, I think anyone who's had an older sibling or you were the older sibling, like you know that that relationship's strained in different ways. But usually, what brings that on is if you get more of your parents' attention, they don't like you. Mm-hmm. you know, they, they they think that if they're the oldest, they should get that, mm-hmm. um, or that if you do better than them, or in some way you're better than them, or you, you beat them at something, it's really bad, and it gets really bad really quickly. So mm-hmm. I think for Cain and Abel, that was likely the impetus for that. Mm-hmm. And it just got the better of that jealousy or that the anger. Got yeah. The yeah, absolutely, and that's a. I'm glad you brought that point out because, again, as an only kid, I don't have that sense of um, a feeling like of following my bigger brother's shadow. You know, what I mean, or just you don't place at all. You just don't try. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. So, uh, so seeing uh, Foster and Noble, that they kind of remind me of another uh, sibling relationship with a family I, I often ate lunch with with after church on Sundays in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So typically after church, my family would go with another family to go eat somewhere out to eat. We would go to like a Logan's Road house or, you know. And, you know, if you we're in middle school and so uh, you know this, you've probably already done this whenever you guys go out to eat with each other and your families. You know, there's an adult table and there's a kid table, right? So my parents would sit at the adult table. I would sit at the kid's table with my buddy Peyton and his little brother Connor. And Connor and Peyton had a considerable a, a considerable age difference, right? We were in middle school. Connor's like six or six or five, and uh, for the most part, Peyton's a really good older brother. Like when Connor was crying, Peyton's holding him, reassuring everything's okay. You know, it's, there's a great image uh, we I have of Peyton just. Uh, we were coming home from a football game at my school, uh, and right before we got into the, car, into the car, Connor tripped and busted his knee. And so through the whole way home, and this is after Peyton played football, uh, uh, he was holding his little brother as he was sobbing in the car. It was really the sweet image, right? So there's this sacred trust there. And then uh, <laughs> one Sunday after church, Peyton was just really irritated with Connor, you know. Connor was in this stage of his life where he was asking questions after questions after question. So, so annoying, but I couldn't do anything. You know, he would be like, what's that? It's a straw, you know that. What's that? It's a fork, you know this. It's a spoon. Uh, and eventually, though, what he, uh, waiter comes, brings a water cup, has a lemon in there. And then uh, Connor goes, what's that? And Peyton goes, that's a yellow orange. And Connor was like, an orange? Oranges are his favorite. So he takes it, and he takes a big old bite, and the moment he took it, that bite, it spat right back out, and he starts crying, right? You know, that's, uh, I thought that was so genius, but I'm sure that was like, that's common for big families, right? So there's, like that, there's a violation there that he's, okay, I'm not going to trust my big brother anymore in some sense as it relates to things that look like oranges. Okay, and magnify that by a million and that, you know, think about Abel and Cain, right? 
it's easy for us to see this kind of relationship between you know Abel the younger one Cain the older one looking to his uh, big brother and for a variety of ways because you you would have to think why would Abel follow Cain if if it was obvious that Cain was really upset with him right and um, and so he follows after Cain and out of nowhere uh, you know he their walk. I don't know how it happens, right? You can only imagine, like, Abel's real excited. He's going a little bit ahead of Cain, and then, you know, next thing you know, he turns around, and he sees his brother, you know, take him out, however that happens. And what a horrible way to die, because the very person you've been trusting uh, all of your life is now attacking you and ends up killing you. And your last thought is betrayal, or feeling is of betrayal. Um, so, uh, let's see, sorry, uh, so when Cain commits that distransgression of killing his younger brother, he commits a violation of the sacred trust between the two of them, uh, and he also commits it through enacting violence in some way, and in the moment in which Cain committed this transgression, this violence left a mark, an indention in reality that was not his to put in the first place. You know, uh, it's almost like getting, if you get a dent in your car and you can't do anything to pop it back out, no matter how hard you try, right? Um, so if this, so that's, that's any comment before I, I move further? Are we all tracking along so far? Time is it? Okay. Okay. All right. I got a few more minutes. Um, so, uh, if this was a little bit longer, uh, I would I would want to start talk. If we had a longer, if we were here for a weekend for whatever reason, I would start wondering uh, more specifically about forgiveness when transgressions are committed. Uh, and, this, and the complication of forgiveness and grace. Uh, you know, I think this story is kind of like a modern, re- modern retelling of what's been happening in the institutional church, evangelical and Catholic, for the past 10, 15 years, right? Especially as it relates to uh, crimes of abuse. Um, and I, we're not, I don't want to, not going to go too much into it, but this idea about violating trust and taking someone's uh, who is trust and just destroying it um, and the church kind of not really taking ownership of that uh, is the is probably one of the uh, worst things about our wit- witness right now in in terms of evangelism right um, I mean it, it's, it's tragic because uh, uh, and I would, and if we were to explore that, what I was going to say, what I would end up saying is that transgressions or violations of trust in relationships that involve our bodies uh, complicates the reality of God's grace. Uh, it doesn't complicate the truthfulness of God's grace. What complicates is uh, the victim's um, reception of God's grace, right? Um, uh, especially when the violation occurs in the very place where you learn about salvation. Um, the reality of trauma raises serious questions about the adequacy of, of you know, our free will and grace and God. 
Um, and so churches need to end up becoming a place for uh, that really addresses these crimes head, head on. Uh, and it's incredibly uncomfortable. The moment I said abuse, this whole room tensed up, right? Because we're not used to talking about this uh, in a public setting. Um, but here's, but this is where the bad, the bad word transgression really matters to kind of capture what's happening in our world. Think about the Larry Nasser case for, for a second. Uh, that man has put so many dents in a in distorted reality uh, that uh, nothing is going to save him other than the grace of God if he actually is going to plead for forgiveness, right? And, and even when he has forgiveness from the people he uh, hurt and marred in a serious way, if you listen to the testimonies of the fellow Olympians, what they would end up saying is, look, I forgive you, but you still need to know that you did something to me that can never be undone. There's this fundamental distortion of my humanity that happened that you did to me. Uh, and there's some, and so there's this distinction here that when we trans, or when we transgress, when we actually commit this violation of breaking of trust uh, with others, uh, what ends up happening is that uh, that woundedness will always remain, right? Despite you know, there's a difference between forgiveness in terms of psychology and actual reconciliation and healing that can only come from God whenever God decides to come back, right? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll share a story that kind of, and the re, you know, I know a few folks in my life who I was close to that have been hurt by this kind of transgression, right? And, um, and I, so there's, that's part of the motivation why I bring such a tense thing up this morning is because uh, the way church is done, uh, the way they see church has never been the same. Right. That's why taking the protection of our kids and our uh, and trying to uh, get clear on if, on how to to approach these things needs to be more out in the open, precisely because uh, their salvation is at stake. Right. Um, when um, uh, put it to you, I'll put it to you this way: what are the, what's the likelihood of someone who's been hurt by a minister? And uh, and that and what's the likelihood of them returning back to the faith? Um, it's not impossible, but it's not as probable as we want to think, right? Because the very because the body remembers what happens when someone transgression uh, commits a transgression against it, right? That's what trauma is. Um, I'll I'll end with this. Um, uh, I should see Kevin, so I need to wrap it up, right? Um, so anyway, that's, so that's kind of where, where I would, you know, Kyle put on the Facebook, we're going to talk about the sobering reality of human nature, you know. That's a sobering reality, right? If we haven't learned anything from the Catholic Church and even these things in the evangelical church that are popping up, uh, like, I think our witness is doomed. Um, and I think uh, we need to start thinking more seriously about what does it mean for us to be a church that exists for people who have been traumatized by the very people who are offering salvation? Like That's the question that we need to start thinking about and, and processing together. Um, Michael, I've interrupted so many times. 
Um, yeah, I go for it. It's reminded me of something that's great. I'm glad you bring it up. Mm -hmm. um, I watched the movie Two Popes this weekend, and it, it talks about some of that mm -hmm. and the effect it's had on the Catholic Church and mm -hmm. you know, Pope Gregory in general. But um, it had the effect on Penn State football. Mm -hmm. and, you know, probably never go away. Mm -hmm. That had on their legacy. Um, it reminds me, we were talking about sin last week and how you know, we're always bringing this up and kind of banging this drum that we don't talk about sin in the church today, and I think there are some really negative effects of that. I think there are negative effects if we don't talk about the reality of situations like that. And it's easy to point at the Catholic Church and say, well, they're the only ones that have, you know, covered those things up, but certainly evangelical churches have, and um, and it's, it's something that we need to be very open about. What we need to be open about when we talk about sin is, is that it's, it is an, it's one thing to say that we're forgiven and that you know, our sins will be covered and to kind of live just with this mindset of grace and, and, the, and the immense goodness that is represented by God's grace and his love for us despite our sin. But if we don't talk about the sin, we, we kind of cover over the effects that sin can have. And it can have on our witness. Mm -hmm. So I think primarily, you know, the way that others see us when we still sin. Because if we're really following Christ and we've taken on his way in our life, mm -hmm. the direction of our life should not be that. You know, mm -hmm. It should not be to continue to return to our vomit, as it were, you mm -hmm. know, you sin. And that does impact our witness in a way that may be permanent in some people's minds. Mm -hmm. talk about, you talk about, like, you know, messing up with the reality that God wants for us, mm -hmm. and that he, he designed for us. That we put a dent in that that's forever is is it's painful. Mm -hmm. so you think about transgression is even a deeper and maybe even more visceral or physical mm -hmm. dent. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's so true. Mm -hmm. When we transgress people that should have our trust, one thing to sin against someone in business that we don't know and that we don't have, you know, a church bond with or a Christian bond with, it's a whole other thing to do with someone that we that's even our own child or that's someone in the church. I mean it's it kind of gives a little more depth to this idea of transgression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, to to uh, not beat up Catholics all the time, right? Like, <laughs> like yeah. uh, so uh, I've been applying for ministry positions for a while. Uh, a couple years ago, I uh, was uh, driving to see my ex-girlfriend at Harding, and I called my friend, uh, and I got a call from a friend who's doing a PhD in Arkansas, and uh, this person ends up telling me that her old church back in Stephenville, Texas is looking for a campus minister. So I apply. Why not? And uh, a few months later, I didn't get the job. Praise God. Let me tell you why. So, so I find out later on that, the, that the, um, they did hire a guy, uh, but the guy who was leading that search committee and uh, who was working there as a youth minister was uh, now in prison for three counts of child pornography. And this is in small town Texas, right? Imagine if you are, imagine Searcy, Arkansas. Everyone knows everyone in town, right? They know the churches in town. This was like on the front page of their local newspaper. That church is now dying, <laughs> dying. It's completely destroyed their witness. Um, and so, like, we are not exempt. Churches of Christ are not exempt from this, right? We all have these stories that, um, and so, uh, and like, like Kyle was saying, it's time for us to start thinking about fresh ways to discuss transgression and to, to try to discern how to approach that. I'll end with, the, with a couple of quotes by Stanley 
uh, Hauerwas, or one quote by Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, to be a disciple uh, is to be part of a new community, a new polity, which is formed on Jesus' obedience to the cross. The constitutions of this new polity are the Gospels. The Gospels are not just a depiction of a man, but they are manuals for training necessary to be part of this new community. And to be a disciple means to share Christ's story and to participate in the reality of God's rule. And so I guess I would just end by saying that uh, as we think more about transgressions uh, and the seriousness of of what it does to our own humanity, uh, I hope the church becomes a place for healing uh, where we can help those who have been traumatized. So anyway, that would be all. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it.